Welcome to episode two of the Church Times Poetry Podcast for Lent, in association with Canterbury Press. This week, Canon Mark Oakley reflects on the poem Don't Give Me the Whole Truth by Olaf H. Hauger. The poem is in his 1996 collection of the same name, published by Anvil Press Poetry, an imprint of Carcanet Press. The material from this episode is taken from Mark's book, The Splash of Words, published by Canterbury Press, which won the 2019 Michael Ramsey Prize for Theological Writing. If you don't yet subscribe to The Church Times, you can try 10 issues for £10. Visit churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Don't Give Me the Whole Truth by Olaf H. Hauger Don't give me the whole truth. Don't give me the sea for my thirst. Don't give me the sky when I ask for light. But give me a glint, a dewy wisp, a moat, as the birds bear water drops from their bathing and the wind a grain of salt. Olaf Hauger was a Norwegian poet and translator. He lived in Ulvik on the Hardangerfjord, in a simple home with handmade chairs, bowls and wooden bookcases stacked with poetry from around the world. He was a solitary figure, living in three acres of ground and surviving on the proceeds from his 70 apple trees. He translated international poetry into Norwegian and was a learned man, modest and self-contained. He married at the age of 65, and enjoyed his companionship with his wife for over 20 years, until in 1994 he was discovered dead, peacefully sitting in his reading chair. This poem prayer is translated, as many of his poems are, by Robin Fulton. Like much of his native Norwegian landscape, there is a wild beauty to enjoy in Hauger's poetry, and there's also a bleakness, human breath made visible in the cold, indifferent terrain. Influenced by classical Chinese poetry, Hauger's poems are often short, graceful, distilled. He composed in various poetic forms, often short, such as sonnets and haiku-like structures. He wrote in his native Western Norwegian dialect, giving an earthiness to the original text, fortified by some concrete vocabulary and simple imagery. The result is an artistic simplicity, which, some wonder, might have less to it than meets the eye. For admirers, however, Hauger's plain style is deceptive and gives a rich flavour that lingers in the mind and clarifies the presence of the world. Here in this poem... Hauger prays that he will only be given enough in life to keep him going. He doesn't want all that there is. Like birds who only carry off a few drops of water from the stream or wind that only takes a grain of salt from the ocean, he doesn't want to possess everything or understand it completely. Instead, he asks for glints, epiphanies, droplet recognitions that feed us enough to keep us exploring, but not enough to make us feel we have arrived. It is the prayer of a pilgrim. 
The imagery within the poem is elemental, sea, sky, birds and wind, and you sense a person here alone with the natural world as company. Reflection in such solitude has perhaps made him sense the easy answers are never the ones worth having. He seems to imply that we can be seduced by our need for clarity, our desire to be right, by that unattractive preening side to us that longs to be full of impressive knowledge to swank about with. Our brains can go to our heads. In reply, the hardened landscape is never impressed. From its distance, it leaves us, standing alone, without comfort, with the wind teasing us, making us topple over. The Judeo-Christian scriptures are full of reminders that we are limited beings who cannot ever understand God or the totality of the universe. Our absolute systems of thought and belief only make us look absurd if we take them too seriously, for with God all is as yet unfinished and undisclosed. Prayers that are fashioned out of a conviction that God agrees with our take on things are pale imitations of what prayer is. Prayer invites us to stop gripping, to become dependent, to rinse out our eyes so that when the momentary miracle comes, we can say, thank you, not I told you so. Like St Kevin, who prayed with his hands open, so still that a blackbird nested in them, Hauger here implies that whereas a possessive accumulation of facts gives a disproportionate sense of our knowledge and control of life, a receptive modesty gives birth to a wisdom capable of feeling the rhythms of the world and attending to them in awe and thankfulness. I'm reminded at this point by the pie of knowledge. This is an attempt to describe our knowledge of things in relation to all the knowledge in the universe by making a pie chart like a sliced cake and cutting it into sections. The first slice of the pie of knowledge is made up of those things that you know you know. This might be, for example, the plot of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility, or the name of your dog, or how to make pancakes. Then there are the things you know you don't know. This may be a larger slice, and may include nuclear physics, the mating rituals of the horsefly, the names of all the stars, or the rules of polo. The third slice contains the things you know but have forgotten. Again, this may include your grandchild's phone number, how chocolate is made, and who this is talking to you now. The fourth slice of the pie is very interesting. The things you don't know, you don't know. Now, I can't give you examples here because that would mean I knew. But the last slice is the things you think you know, but really don't. Now, your family or friends might be better able to identify these for you, but they include, for instance, maybe the symbolism in Tolstoy's War and Peace, why my neighbour is like he is, the causes of inner-city poverty, or what it was like to have been in Auschwitz. 
which would your biggest slice of the cake be? For all human beings, the largest slice will be those things you don't know, you don't know. This slice probably makes up 99.9% of the cake for most of us. The total knowledge of our universe is so vast that the sum of all human knowledge is infinitesimally small by comparison. Leadership and management trainers use this pie because they know that people who have a large slice of the I think I know it all piece can be people who make hasty, ill-advised decisions based on ignorance. And it's vital, so the training goes, that everybody knows that there is a slice, a very large slice, containing the things we don't know we don't know, and we need to act accordingly in our transactions. For believers in God, the pie of knowledge is very pertinent. When we approach the mystery of God, we come face to face with our ignorance. Wise theologians, like Thomas Aquinas, even try to burn their theology from time to time. It might well be that eternity will be spent being shown all those things we didn't know we didn't know, as well as the things we thought we did, but had got badly wrong. This is why, at its best, Anglican theology, the resource from which I try to make some sense of God's being in the universe, has never tried to over-define God or God's mysteries. Instead of offering a dogmatic dotted line to sign, it has instead preferred to offer people a prayer book to see if they'd like to join in. So badly do we misunderstand ourselves, never mind anything else, that St. Teresa commented that more tears are spilt over prayers that are answered than those which aren't. Christian faith has learned that God does not make himself into a convenient and understandable bit of information, facts of knowledge packaged for human consumption. There is no divine text, email or blog that relays to us everything about him. How could that be done anyway? Instead of giving us information or complete comprehension, God gives us his presence. His eternal word is not published or stored, according to St. John. It is rather made into human being and in living relationship with us. He dwells amongst us. In fact, in the Greek, John implies that God tabernacles with us, that is, pitches his tent next to ours, sets up camp alongside us. Not so that we can know him fully, or pin him down like a dead butterfly and then pride ourselves in what we know and others don't, but so we can relate to him, begin to understand him through prayer, learn how to love him, begin to trust and sit with him, like sitting in the sunlight, to be changed by him, to have a relationship that grows and develops through honesty and integrity. This is a living knowledge, like that with someone we love and want to understand better. And it knows setbacks and hurts, and it demands some changes in us if we are to learn more and love better. The God to whom we relate may not be fully understood. In fact, at times, we want to take him on and shout at him about it. 
God is never fully understood, but is always present, always in relationship, no matter how shadowed. He seeks from us not cleverness, but connection. And this always demands of us the ability to receive more. To this end, as Christians, we should learn to question more, to question as a ritual, as an exploration of grace, rather than as a search for certainty. In a competitive world that prides itself on information, and where the first person to draw a breath is usually declared the listener, Hauger's prayer puts us back in proportion, just as Lent seeks to do. It recalls the words of Henri Nguyen, My deepest vocation is to be a witness to the glimpses of God I have been allowed to catch. At Hauger's funeral, his body was taken up the mountain to its resting place in a horse-drawn cart. Trotting next to its mother all the way and beside the coffin was the horse's foal, dancing and energetically alive as the mourners made their way uphill. It's an image that seems appropriate for a poet who saw the cyclical nature of the world as its glory and perceived that it is only the unencumbered, childlike soul that can celebrate the sacrament of the present moment. Hauger lived all his life in the place he was born, and yet his soul was a very seasoned traveller. As Marcel Proust came to appreciate, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Mm-hmm.